The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Uh, why don't we open our Bibles to First Peter, First Peter chapter 4, as we uh, continue our study through First Peter. And uh, believe it or not, we are nearing the end. I think I counted up maybe eight messages left in First uh, Peter, so... Uh, by early uh, next year, uh, we'll be done with First Peter. So uh, I don't know, is that like excitement to reach the end of the book or just, <laughs> just excitement to get to the next one? I'm not sure what that is. I, I think we're just, we're just excited about First Peter. I think that's what's, what's going on here. But uh, the last time we were in First Peter uh, together, uh, we were considering the Christian response to a hostile world, the Christian response to a hostile world. And that's really an accurate way to describe the world that we live in today. Uh, The world is a hostile world. Even though that might not be the way you would perceive the world around you, maybe you came in here today, this morning, uh, maybe you're an unbeliever, and uh, you said, I I don't really consider the the world to be hostile. I I don't consider myself to be hostile against the Lord. You know, maybe I'm neutral towards the Lord. You know, maybe I've, I might even be favorable towards the Lord, but I definitely wouldn't consider myself to be hostile against the Lord. But the Bible paints a very different picture of humanity. The Bible pictures sinful humanity in war against God. And if you have not subjected yourself to God and to his law, the Bible says that in your mind, You've actually set yourself up against the God of the universe, the God who created you. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And what you consider to just be living your your best life now and achieving your dreams and reaching your goals, if that does not acknowledge the Lord who made you, who gives you life and breath, even that is an act of treachery against the Lord. Because you are actively working against the glory of God that he rightly deserves and suppressing the truth of that God in unrighteousness. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says that without faith it is impossible to please him. And the pleasure that you find in your sin, which God says that he hates, makes you an enemy of God, that you delight in that which displeases him, that the signs of rebellion against him, that you delight in those same acts. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just loving the present world, the present world system, Loving life lived underneath my rules, doing things my way, just just loving that alone is enough for you to be considered an enemy of God. And if you doubted whether or not you were an enemy of God, tell me how have you responded to his son, Jesus Christ? In Psalm 2 and verse 12, it says, kiss the son or do homage to the son 
that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And if you're a believer who's here today, and you don't believe that the world is hostile, just ask yourself a question. How, how, how would the world respond if I tried to take away the, the very sin that they're enjoying? How, how would the world respond to me at that moment? If you remember Lot and his family, they were able to live comfortably in Sodom until the men of Sodom approached Lot's door to have relations with the angels. And then Lot had the nerve to open up his mouth, right? Genesis 19 and 7 says, please, please, my brothers. You know, he's, he's pleading with them here. He's, he's being polite in his address. Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. And Lot quickly discovered that he was living in a hostile world. Genesis 19 and verse 9 says, they, they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. And already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. Just, just ask yourself, how, how will the world treat me if I stand against the very sin that they're going after? Please, please, brothers. Please, brothers, let's not act wickedly. How, how long do you think he'd survive in that kind of scenario. Sodom never accepted Lot as one of them. He came in as an alien, and they quickly turned on him. And in a similar way, when you have the nerve to open up your mouth and stand against the world, you'll find out that you're an alien among men, and the pressure will begin to come against you, and you'll realize that we're all in a spiritual war. The world around us is in a constant state of war against the Lord, as much as we might want to escape it, we can't help but get caught in the crossfire if we plan to be faithful to the Lord and stand upon his word. In John 16, verse 33, it says, In the world you have tribulation. In John 15, and verse 20, Jesus says, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. First John 5, and verse 19, it says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's where this world is. In the world that we live in today, it's not a safe space for Christians. It's not a no-shoot zone. We live on a battlefield, and we need to be prepared to suffer persecutions, prepared to separate from evil, prepared to stand for the truth, and prepared to speak the gospel. Those were the four points that we covered the last time we were together in verses 1 through 6, and the focus was directed towards how we're to respond to the unbelieving world around us. We need to be prepared to respond biblically. Uh, the hostile world around us reminds us that we need to prepare ourselves. It's actually words used of warfare. But there's something else that the hostile world around us should remind us of, and it's that the Savior is coming. <laughs> that, that the world that stands against Christ will not stand long, okay? Because a hostile world cannot stand in its hostility forever. Christ will come. And the hostility of the world around us should remind us that it's heading toward an appointed end, and that the Christ that they've rejected and rebelled against and refused to worship will not hold back his judgment forever. Verse 5 says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And in chapter 4 and verse 7, it says that the end of all things is near. That's God's response to a hostile world. The judge is ready to hold judgment against them. He will readily judge them. There's no reluctance on his part to judge. So as believers, 
we are expected to live with an eye toward eternity because the, the Lord will only allow the world to go so far in its rebellion. And as we've looked through Scripture, as we look through Scripture, there's a, a couple examples of this in biblical history. Just want to point you to a couple of these where God just allowed people to go only so far before the judgment fell. For example, there was the worldwide flood. Only came after Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it was after that that judgment fell. The judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah came only after Genesis 18 and verse 20 where it says that the Lord saw that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah was indeed great and their sin was exceedingly grave and then the judgment fell. The nations that existed in the land of Israel were cast out only after they had defiled the land by their sins. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 25 says, The land has become defiled, therefore I have brought this punishment upon it. So the land spewed out its inhabitants. And the Ninevites, if you remember, were right there on the brink of destruction, kind of teetering on the edge of destruction. Forty days were left on the clock. And they pulled back from the ledge, but only temporarily. Because a a hundred years later, the destruction that Jonah predicted actually fell. In the book of Nahum, chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, And it will come about that all you who see will shrink and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? The Amorites, Genesis chapter 15, were offered mercy for a period of time. Genesis 15, verse 16. God told Abraham about his descendants, and he says, In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's sin in this land, but it hasn't yet reached the tipping point. I'm going to give them more time. The sins of the Amorites is not yet complete. But then in four generations later, The destruction came, Exodus 23 and verse 23, God says, for my angel will go before you and bring you in the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Over and over and over again, the Lord allows hostility, the hostility of the world to only go so far before the judgment falls. And when the judgment falls, it falls suddenly, suddenly. Proverbs 29, verse 1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. And the same is true for the nations, and the same is actually true for the world. There comes a point where sudden judgment falls. And that's the kind of judgment that's described in Scripture as being near at hand or at the door. For example, when John the Baptist described the coming judgment of the Messiah in his day, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. There's no prep work that needs to happen first. You know, we we don't have to run around and try to find an axe to chop this tree down. The axe is already right there. It's near. It's right there at the door. It's already at the root of the trees. It's just a matter of uh, whether it's the time for the lumberjack to start swinging. There's no prep work that needs to happen. It's already been prepared. It's near. That's the kind of judgment that's described as being near at hand. Romans chapter 13 and verse 12, it says, The night is almost gone, 
and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The day is near. James describes it as being right at the door. James 5, verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Jesus described it in the same way, Matthew chapter 24, verse 33. Jesus said, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. And that's the same kind of thing that Peter reminds us of. The hostility of the the world should be a reminder to us that judgment is right near at the door. (laughs) Judgment is at the door. Judgment is not far behind. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll start at verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. It says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received the special gift, employ it in serving one another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we I do thank you for this text. We pray that you would open the words of, of this text to us, that you'd help us to understand what's written in it, what's contained here. And Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, allow us, Lord, to, to be those who are ready, uh, ready for, for whenever it would be that uh, Christ would come, whenever he would call. Uh, Father, that, that we would be those who stand ready. And uh, Father, I pray for those who may be here today who are not ready. Lord, I pray that this message would be a wake-up call, that they would run to the Savior before it's too late. I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a theological term that I want to introduce you to, and it's the term eminence. Eminence. Uh, There's a a similar term that's spelled a a different way, uh, differently known as eminence, and uh, spelled with an A, -A I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. Uh, that term eminence with the A teaches us that God is near, his presence, his activity in the world, that God draws near to us. Uh, one of the passages that would be used for that uh, term eminence would be Isaiah 57 in verse 15, uh, which says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know, so God is high, he's transcendent, he's above us, but yet God draws near to us. God is near with us. You know, he, 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 he dwells with the contrite and with the lowly. Uh, another passage that might be used is uh, Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? God is very near to us. That's his eminence with an A. But the word eminence with an I, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E is a different word. And that's the word that theologians use when they're referring to the condition of something that could happen at any moment or something that is about to happen. And when we apply this word to the second coming, what we're saying is that Christ could return at any moment. Why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, just to show you a couple places where this is used. 
The idea that the Lord could return at any moment is something that's taught uh, throughout the, the scriptures. And uh, like I said, I just want to show you a few places where this idea is, is shown. Uh, Romans chapter 13, take a look at verse 12. Romans 13, starting at verse 12. Paul says here, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Night is almost gone. The day when, when God breaks through is near. You better wake up. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sexuality, uh, sensuality, some of the same sins that we saw over in 1 Peter mentioned again, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Why? Because Christ could come back at any moment. The day is near. That's the idea. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We often turn to 1 Corinthians 15 when we are thinking about the resurrection of Christ, but it also lets us know that a sudden change can take place at any time. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll start at verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 51. Paul says here, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Actually, I heard uh, there are some nurseries that use that as a verse over the, the nursery. You know, for the kids, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. When? In a moment. It's the Greek word atomos, the, the smallest fraction of time. We get the word atom from it, atomos. In the twinkling of an eye, and it's not the, the blink of an eye, but it's the, the time that it takes for light to bounce off of the eye, fractions of a second. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Moments, a solitary moment, an atom can happen like that. <laughs> God is near. And what we're talking about is something that happens in an instant. 1 Corinthians 7.29 says, The time has been shortened. It's coming. Over in the book of Philippians 3, it lets us know what kind of eager expectation we should live with as we anticipate this change that is to take place. Philippians chapter 3. I'll take a look at uh, verse 21. Philippians chapter 3. Actually, I'll start at verse 20. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, any moment, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Any moment can happen. We're eagerly waiting, anticipating. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to show you the kind of expectations that the believers had in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, and notice here that Paul includes himself and those that he's writing to in the we. He's saying that this could happen to us, 
that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He speaks about himself and those that he's talking to as if this could be the generation where it happens. Because we don't know. (laughs) It, It could be us. It could be us. He doesn't push it off to some future generation. He says, this could happen to us. My, my mother told me that one of my father's favorite sayings was, it could be today. It could be today. And that's true because it, it could be today, right? It could be today. So, so we're to live in this constant state of readiness. Luke 12, 35, Jesus says, be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately Open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Any moment, any moment. First John 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And Jesus says in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. So we need to live in a constant state of, of readiness, regardless of how long it's been, because it could be right there at the door. And it is. It's right there at the door. We have no idea when it tips over, the the scale tips over and it's time. We have no idea, but there's nothing else that has to be prepared. The the ax is already there. The judge is already at the door. Everything's already ready to go. It's just a matter of the timing. Is it the right time yet? We don't know, but it's going to happen suddenly. We have no idea when it will come. And it doesn't matter how long it's been. It's always near, always near. Flip over to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you remember, 2 Peter chapter 3 was obviously written after 1 Peter (laughs) chapter 4, right? 2 Peter chapter 3, this is the second letter that he's writing to the same group of people. And there are people who are saying, yeah, you, you already talked about Jesus coming back again before. But I haven't seen it yet. It hasn't happened yet. Everything's continuing just like it was from the beginning. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, not so fast. Not so fast. Second Peter chapter 3, look at verse 3. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. What is he saying? There was a, a period of time when there was nothing, and then all of a sudden, cataclysmically, the earth was formed. It it, it didn't take a long time for that to happen. All all God had to say is just let there be, right? Let there be, boom, and it was. There doesn't need to be a long process of, of time ahead of that. No, all God has to say it's now, and it happens. It escapes their notice that that's how the world itself was created. Verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now he turns over to the flood. When did that happen? In a moment. <laughs> in a moment. There wasn't a whole lot of time in, in advance. You know, so, so Noah's here preaching for how long? 120 years, possibly by some estimates. Preaching, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But on the day it came, there was no time to get ready. <laughs> there was no time to get, you either had to be ready. You had to be ready in order to be ready. You had to be ready in advance in order to be ready. But there was no time to get ready when it happened. Once the rain started to fall, it was too late. It was too late. Verse 7, by this, but by this word, 
But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, talking about the next event to come, kept for the day of judgment, destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. What does that mean? Time doesn't matter to God. <laughs> Time doesn't matter to God. A thousand years like a day, a day like a thousand years. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the thief doesn't announce his entrance. <laughs> it's sudden, something that could happen at any moment. It's imminent. And that's what Peter reminds us of back in 1 Peter chapter 4. The end could happen at any moment. And it's the end of all things. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says the end of all things is, is near. Uh, when he speaks about the, uh, the end of all, he's talking about absolutely all. It's in the emphatic position. It, it puts it up front to give emphasis to all things ending. And the word for end is the Greek word telos. And uh, it's in this context, it's used to refer to the, to the consummation or completion of something. It's the designated goal. It's a similar word that Jesus used back in John 19 and verse 30 when he said, it is finished. The telestai, similar word that was used there. And it doesn't mean that things have stopped. It means that things have been brought to their intended end, the goal, the final conclusion. As one author says, it's the, the goal achieved, the result attained, or a purpose consummated, a victory won. It has the idea of reaching the ultimate destiny. And we know from Scripture that creation finds its ultimate destiny in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 uh, says, By him, referring to Jesus Christ, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 18 of Colossians 1 says, he himself will come to have first place in everything. It's, it's all intended for him. It's been created by him and it's for him. All of creation, visible and invisible, designated for Jesus Christ. Psalm 2.8, uh, God says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus will possess the ends of the earth and he alone is the one who's qualified to open, worthy to open up the, the scroll, Revelation 5 and verse 5, to take possession of the earth. And Peter says that time is near. That time is near. It's at the door. It's at the door. It's right. It's, who knows when it could be? <laughs> who, who knows when that moment could happen? We, we don't know when, it, when th those things are going to start to unfold. We don't know when that time will come. So Peter says it's near. It's near. And then what does he say? The end of all things is near. Therefore, what would you expect him to say next? Therefore, you might expect Peter to say something like, you know, because Jesus is coming back so soon, you know, you can just drop everything and everybody become a missionary. But that's not what he says. Maybe you might expect him to say, you know, Jesus is coming back soon, so you might as well quit your job and just wait for him to come back because nothing matters anymore. But that's not what he says. You know, apparently that's what some in Thessalonica did. You know, dropped their, their work, became busybodies. But that's not what Peter tells them to do. You know, maybe you might expect Peter to be like uh, one of those popular radio ministries that predicted the end of the world back in 2011. 
to teach that all Christians should leave their churches because all churches have become an abomination. You know, maybe you might expect them to say something like that. Even though Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says that we should gather together even more as you see the day drawing near. You know, there's a radio ministry that said that we shouldn't meet together at all. If you believe the end is drawing near, what should you do? I love what uh, Martin Luther said. Martin Luther was asked, what would he do if he knew that the end of the world was coming? He says, uh, if I knew that the end of the world would come today, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. (laughs) Plant a tree and pay my taxes. And what he meant was that he would do whatever the next appointed task was to do. I'm not going to go crazy because we should be living every day in light of the end. The, the end could come today. What are you to do today? Be faithful to what the Lord has called you to do today. Be faithful to the Lord. We don't become frantic. We don't abandon all personal responsibilities. Instead, we need to keep our heads and think soberly, which is exactly what 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 says. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Be of sound judgment. Self-controlled in some of your your versions. Sensible. Be sensible. Reasonable. It's the ability to to act in an appropriate manner given the circumstances. Another way you could translate this word is be clear-minded. Be clear-headed. Same word used over in uh, Mark chapter 5 and verse 15 to describe the demon-possessed man who was freed from the legion. It says that he was clothed and sitting in his right mind. In his right mind. You know, he's he's clear now. He's clear-thinking now. 2 Corinthians 5.13, it was contrasted with being out of one's mind, being besides oneself. We're to be clear-headed. Similar word was used over in Acts where, uh, you know, uh, uh, I believe it was Festus said, Paul, you're out of your mind. He says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sober. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm, I'm clear-thinking. It's the idea that's reinforced in the next term. Next term in chapter 4 and verse 7 where it says to be sober spirit. To have a sober spirit. And again, we're, we're talking about being in full control of your, your faculties. We're not to be given over to indulgence, fuzzy-headed thinking. And the, the question might be, why? Why should we think like this? Why do we need to be sound in our judgment, sober in spirit? It says it's for the purpose of prayer. <laughs> if, if, if you believe that the end is near, you need to be clear-headed so you can pray. You don't need to be fuzzy-headed. You need to be clear and sober so you can, you can pray. One of my uh, professors in seminary said, you need to be prepared to pray, preach, or die at a moment's notice. Be prepared. And the idea here is that you need to keep your head clear so that you can pray. Have clear-headed prayers. Prayers are to be sensible, reasonable, thoughtful. And that's why I call this first point, sober up for your prayers. Sober up for your prayers. You can't become so distracted by the hostility of the world around us that, you know, everything's just going to end anyway. You know, what does it matter? You know, you're just frantic. You're all over the place. It says, no, 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 no. (laughs) Sober up. Be clear-headed. Think. James 5, 16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man does what? Avails much. It accomplishes much. We can't give up. You know, sometimes we look at the world around us and things are getting so bad. And it's just like, you know what? It, things are just out of control. And it's coming soon. I just, I just know it. Look at the way that the world is going crazy. What are you to do? Pray. <laughs> Pray. Be thoughtful in your prayers. 
Don't become so discouraged by the world around you that you forget to bring every anxiety to the Lord, every discouragement to the Lord. Because the Lord will answer, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. You know, don't, don't forget that, with thanksgiving. Are you discouraged about what you see going on in the government? 1 Timothy 2 says, pray. Prayers are to be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Discouraged by the, the world around you that's not hearing the truth? You know, it seems like, like they're just so hardened to the truth every time you try to speak to anybody about the gospel. What are you to do? Pray? 2 Thessalonians 3.1, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Are you facing persecution for your faith? That's what these believers were facing, persecution for their faith. What are you to do? Praying? Matthew 5.44, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Are you feeling the pressure of the world around you to give in to temptation? And you feel like giving in just to get them off your back? What are you to do? Pray? Luke twenty two forty six. Jesus said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Wake up, wise up, sober up. If you understand that the day's drawing near, that we're living in evil days, why wouldn't you want to be alert and on your guard in prayer? 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. If all things are winding up, you need to pray. And it might not be what we would immediately think if we think the end is coming, but this is what the Lord says we need. And our prayers are to be thoughtful, sober. I'd also add that it's be for, for one another as well. We're to pray for one another. And actually, all these uh, exhortations that we find here, it's in the context of, of the one another's. In verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another. We're also to pray for one another. You see that things are getting tough. There's persecution coming. It seems like the end is drawing near. Pray for the church. Pray that the church would stand strong. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to sober up for prayers. Number two, you need to cover up your brothers in love. Cover up your brothers in love. Look at verse eight. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Tertullian in his uh, second century defense of the Christian faith quoted a pagan author, unbeliever, an enemy of Christianity. And this is what he said. Look at how they love one another. And they're ready to lay down their lives for one another. The, the love of believers was a proof of their transformation. Yesterday, I, I read a story about Chuck Colson, who uh, held a special position of uh, a special counsel to the president, President Nixon, involved in the Watergate scandal. And as a result of his misconduct, he was sentenced to one to three years prison term for obstruction of, of justice. But 10 months before entering into prison, he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And listen to this account. During his time in prison, the newly converted Colson faced the most trying time of his life. His father, with whom he was very close, died. Word came that the Virginia Supreme Court had revoked his license to practice law. Days later, he received the devastating phone call that his teenage son had been jailed for nar narcotics possession. His wife, Patty, was sinking emotionally and physically. He still faced two more years in prison. But his newfound brothers and sisters were praying and working around the clock for his release. 
a veteran congressman from Minnesota and one of the most respected men in Washington, discovered an old statute that would possibly allow him to serve the remainder of Colson's term. After praying about the possibility, he called Colson to tell him that he would ask the president if he could serve the rest of Colson's jail sentence so that Colson could go home to help his hurting family. Shocked nearly beyond words, Colson protested such a personal sacrifice. He couldn't allow it. Following this offer to serve the rest of Colson's sentence, another willing brother, all men of high position, reputation in government, other willing brothers, offered to do the same thing. This lavish outpouring of love by Christian brothers revived Colson's sagging spirit. Colson said it was almost more than I imagined possible. This love of one man for another, Christ's love, and this day I knew him as never before. There was a time in church history when those who attacked Christianity couldn't deny the love that Christians had for one another. And enemies of Christ were, were left speechless. And even during this time, there were enemies of Christ who were left speechless that people would desire to do such a thing, to serve somebody else's sentence in jail. What would the enemies of, of Christ say about the church today? What are they saying about the church today? What kind of impression are we making for before unbelievers? Are we known by our sacrifice of love for one another, fervent love? When Peter says that love is to be above all, he's highlighting that love is a supreme command. And we know about that from Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus said that upon these two commandments, love for God and love for neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. As Christians, we're under the law of love. Romans 13 verse 8 says, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. It's the perfect bond of unity. According to Colossians 3 and verse 14, everything that we're to do is to be done in love. We're to have a fervent love for one another. And it's the, the royal law. It's the, the law that the king gives. It's the law of liberty. And if we can fulfill this one law, we're free from the rest the fervency of the love, it's the, the Greek word ektenase. It's a word that was used for something that's stretched out, extended to its limit, placed under significant strain. One commentator says the term suggests increased tension or highly energetic activity. Tight muscles of an athlete, the stringed instrument that's pulled tight to yield the highest note. The term was used for a horse at full gallop. And the idea is that you're stretching yourself to get the most out of yourself, to love one another? Are, are we stretching ourselves, sacrificing ourselves to love? Same, one form of the this, this same word, ectenase, this, this word for stretching out, was also used in Luke 22 as Jesus was praying before his crucifixion. Or it says that he was in agony, he was praying fervently, same word here, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. It was a strenuous prayer. It was a physically taxing prayer. And that's what Jesus went through for us even before the crucifixion. He stretched himself out for love. And this is the kind of love that we're called to have for one another. Peter says you're, you're to love one another fervently. Stretch yourself out to love one another question is, is, is where are you? Where, where's, what's, what kind of love do you have? Do you have a love that, that stretches itself out? Or the moment that somebody offends you, are you ready to cut them off? <laughs> like, nope, nope, they're cut. 
You know, they, they, no, they don't cross me. You know, that, that's the last time I'll put up with that. And that's where the rest of verse 8 comes in. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We, we don't cut our brothers and sisters off because they sin. That, that's not what we do. Love covers a multitude of sins. And it's helpful for us to see the context of this. Why don't you flip back to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. The saying that, that love covers a multitude of sins is taken from the, the context of Proverbs chapter 10. And I want to start it at verse 11 just to get the context for us. Proverbs chapter 10, starting at verse 11. Try to keep us from walking away with some of the wrong ideas about this. Proverbs chapter 10, look at verse, verse 11. It says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. In other words, uh, the, the righteous are life-giving. You know, fountain was a source of life. But the, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. It hides. The wicked person hides their intentions from others, the intentions of, of others from others. They conceal violence, maliciousness. Actually, uh, uh, actually, Exodus 23 and verse 1 used the same word of concealing for perjury. Exodus 23.1 says, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to become a malicious witness, to conceal, to conceal the truth about something. Concealing evil is wrong. But the very next verse, Proverbs 10 and verse 12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. You know what the word is there? Same word from verse 11. <laughs> Concealing. It says that, Hatred stirs up strife, but love conceals all transgressions. So what's going on here? What's the difference? One, one verse, it says that it's the wicked who conceal maliciousness. Next verse says that love covers wickedness. So, so what's going on here? What, what, what's, what's, what's the difference? What am I to take away from this? What we're to take away is this. First of all, the Bible does not teach us to ignore sins, Okay. When it, when it talks about concealing sin, the Bible does not teach us to ignore sins. We're not to make light of sins. We're not to participate in sins. In fact, if we're aware of an ongoing sin within the church, what do you do? You expose it. You address it. You go to that brother who's sinning, right? You don't just try to hide it. It's like, no, you, you go to that brother. Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. But we're not to publicize sins, we're to address sins, but we're not to publicize sins. And if we can take care of a sin privately and conceal it, that's the biblical instruction. So when it talks about concealing sins, it's the same thing that Matthew 18, 15 says. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. We're, we're to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. I'm, I'm not here to just expose my brother's sins before everybody else. I'm, I want to conceal that sin. I want to address it privately. And actually in uh, Proverbs 10, it, it's, it's actually talking about the, the sins of the mouth. You know, Proverbs uh, in 10 and verse 10, it says, A babbling fool will be ruined. In verse 11, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. In verse 14, the mouth of the foolish Ruin is at hand. With the mouth of the fool is ruin is at hand. 
So, so what it's talking about is, is I'm not here to just publicize the sins that I witness. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to conceal those sins. I'm taking care of my brother. It's like the, the sin of, of Ham when he saw Noah exposing himself when he was drunk. Instead of going to conceal the sin, what did he do? He went to grab his brothers. Hey, come, come and look at dad. You know, dad's been hitting the bottle. Look at him. He's exposed himself. And instead of his brothers coming in to, to mock Noah, what did they do? They, they came in and, and covered his nakedness. And that's what we're to do. We're to cover our brother's nakedness. I don't, I don't, I'm not here to expose you. I'm, I'm here to address you, but I'm not here to expose you. So love covers a multitude of sins. That's the heart of love, to cover transgressions, to, to forgive transgressions, to cover a wrong, to seek to forgive to minimize wrong, to refuse to take offense. That's what we do as brothers and sisters in in Christ. Mutual love of Christians checks the work of sin by keeping it within the immediate sphere of the believers. I'm not here to expose it. I'm here to try to conceal it as much as I can because I want to cover my brothers. We're to sober up for prayers and we're to cover up our brothers in love. And lastly, we're to open up our hearts and open up our homes. Look at verse 9, back to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Be hospitable, verse 9, to one another without complaint. That term uh, hospitable literally means the love of strangers. Philoxenos, it's the, the love of strangers. Common phrase that uh, is used in, in Scripture, common word that's used in Scripture. And here it's the to one another, which actually says that this is within the body. Be hospitable to one another within the body, which says that there can be strangers within the body, brothers and sisters in Christ who are still strangers to you, like people that we don't know. So what are we to do with people within the body, brothers and sisters, those that we're to practice the one another's with, who we don't know? What are we to do? Practice hospitality. Practice a love of strangers. Peter says that we're to display a warm affection to receive brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, today we use the term uh, hospitality for entertaining friends and family. You know, that's when we say, well, I'm being hosp- hospitable. You know, I love hospitality, you know, but it's all the people that you know. You know, I love bringing over my family, bringing over my friends, you know, all the people from my small group, you know, everybody that I know. And then we consider that hospitality. But the Bible says it's hospitality when you invite somebody that you don't know that well. You invite somebody that's from a different small group. People that come to church that have become members, but we still don't know their names yet. It's like those are the people that we're to practice hospitality with. If you have the gift of hospitality, those are the people that you're going after, right? Actually, in uh, the book Hospitality Commands, Alexander Strzok, he writes this. He says, I often hear people say, oh, we just don't know anyone. We can't make any friends at church. He says, I have a suggestion that might solve the problem. It comes from a couple who had a hard time feeling as if they belonged in the congregation. Instead of leaving as many people do, they decided to invite every person in the church to their home for dinner during the next year. By the end of the year, they knew everyone in the church and had made a number of close friendships. Actually, uh, no, a married couple that was introduced at a dinner and now they have a very close relationship it all happened at a dinner, being invited over to, to dinner. You have no idea what will happen when you show up, you know, to somebody's house that you, you might not know as well. 
If you're going to obey this command, what it involves is opening up your heart and opening up your home. Hospitality. The term for hospitality was used to describe uh, someone who had an affectionate concern for strangers, expressed in offering food and shelter. It was one of the important aspects of the, uh, the early Christian practice. It was even a matter of safety in the early church. Listen to this one description of uh, travel in the early centuries of the church. It says that the traveler was not so fortunate in the accommodations for the night. Not that inns were lacking, but their reputation and quality and morals was notorious. The wine was often adulterated. Sleeping quarters were filthy and insect and rodent infested. Innkeepers were extortionate. Thieves were in wait. Government spies were listening, and many were nothing more than brothels. The moral dangers at the ends made hospitality an important virtue in early Christianity. Hospitality occupies a prominent place in Christian literature because of the needs of missionaries and messengers of the church and other Christians who happened to be traveling. The churches provided an extended family, giving lodging and assistance for the journey. It was was an important practice of the, the early church. In the early church, individual Christians used their homes for corporate meetings, also to support itinerant evangelists. You know, traveling evangelists would come to people's homes. And probably beyond this, if you think about the context of First Peter, it was also important during a time of hostility. Probably in here, and we find it in other contexts, but we definitely know that in the book of, of Hebrews that there were believers who lost their property, lost their possessions. So, so where are these believers to go? These Christians, where are they to go when they, their property's been taken from them because of persecution? Where do they go if they don't have a family to turn to? Where do they turn? They should be able to turn to the church. And just like somebody's going to put me up in here. <laughs> they should be able to turn to the church. Are, are you going to send them down to the seedy motel that's a brothel and send them and their, their family over there? Or are you going to open up your home? I mean, in the first century, that was a real problem. I, I know that today we have... Uh, you know, other options. No, but there's still this command of showing hospitality that I want to open up myself to consider that. And who knows when Christians start losing their employment because they're taking a stand for Jesus Christ. My question is, are we prepared to take them in? Are we prepared to, to show hospitality to believers in Jesus Christ? Over in uh, Mark chapter 10, just flip there real quick. Mark chapter 10. Because Jesus spoke to his disciples about what they received when they came to Christ. And you might have missed something here, but I want to point it out. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 29. Actually, I'll start at verse 28. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus says that you will receive now Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Whose houses and mothers and children and farms do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the church. That even though you might lose 
for my sake, house and family and farm and everything else, guess what? I've got more for you. I've got others who are out there. And now what's theirs becomes yours. That now I have a house because my brother has a house. Now I have a family because my brother has a family. I might have lost mine, but now your family becomes my family. It's hospitality that I've been received in. That's what we're to have within the church. We need to be ready to open up our hearts and our homes to one another. And my question is, are you doing that now? Uh, there's some people, and Alexander Strzok tells a story. He says, on vacation with my wife, I had the opportunity to visit a couple. We were concerned about their spiritual welfare. We were delighted to learn that they were living for the Lord, that they were involved in a church. It says they had one complaint, however, during the past year that they had attended church. Not one person, not even the spiritual leaders, had ever invited them over for a meal or a time of fellowship. So our friends still did not feel a part of the fellowship and were quite disheartened. My question is, is that, is that happening here? <laughs> could, could people be here for years and never be invited over to somebody's house to say, hey, I'd like to, to share a meal with you? That's, that's hospitality. The early church was characterized by hospitality. They viewed themselves as brothers and sisters in, in Christ. There's uh, you know, no more Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. We're all the same. Do you receive one another as, as family in Jesus Christ? Even people that you might not have a natural connection with. And hospitality becomes a concrete example of our, our love for one another, right? Through the ministry of hospitality, we share what we prize the most. <laughs> our home, our family, our finances, our food, our privacy. You know, the, what the enemy of hospitality is? Selfishness. <laughs> Selfishness. You know, I, I, I don't really like, like doing anything else when I come home on Sundays. I'd, I'd rather just, just relax. You know, I've, I've got to like look at, the, look at the calendar and see when I might be able to squeeze you in. Peter says that we're to open up our, our lives to one another. And it's costly because we're sharing our lives. And that's why he says to do it without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Uses the, the Greek word gongusmas. Basically sounds like what it means. You know, there's some words that sound like what they mean, like the drip drop, you know, of a faucet. You know, the buzz of a bee, you know, kind of sounds like what you're trying to describe. Gongusmas is one of those, those words. It, it means to, to mutter under your breath. Gongusmas, gongusmas, gongusmas. <laughs> muttering under your breath. You know, I don't know why we always have to open our home for the small group. Somebody else is turn to do it. <laughs> you know, I wanted the chicken breast. I can't believe they took it before I did. How'd they get first in line? Plus, they took the last bit of the hot sauce. <laughs> How long are they going to stay? I've already heard that story before. And maybe some of y'all, how long is he going to preach? Gone goose moss, gone goose moss. Muttering under your breath. Hearts are tempted to complain. Especially when you don't know them like that. You know, they're not even close like that. You know, it's the new guy who took the last chicken leg. It's the new guy. 
And some of them can't return the favor, right? Luke 14, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Don't, don't invite just the people that you think you can get something back from. Just open your heart. Open your heart. Open your own. That's what hospitality is. Contributing to the needs of the saints, Romans 12 says, practicing hospitality. And if you truly understand that we're living in the last times, right? If you truly understand that this is a hostile world, why wouldn't we want our homes to be the haven? You know, outside you're going to experience the hostility of the world, but come on, brother, come on over here. Let let me show you what a family's like. You know, this is where you can feel safe. We've got everything prepared for you. You don't have to worry about anything. You know, we do this because we love you. You know, that's the kind of hospitality that we need to display. You may not be treated well out here, but in here you have family. And we here pray. We're sobered up for prayer. We're thoughtful. We're praying for you. How, how can I be praying for you out there? I know it's a, I know it's a rough world out there. I'm, I'm thinking about you. You know, you follow back up. I'm, I've been thinking about you. I'm thoughtful for prayer. Hey, brother, don't, don't, don't worry. I, I, hey, I forgive you. You don't, have to, you don't even have to worry about it. We're, we're, we cover up our brother's sins here. No, don't, I'm not going to share and try to expose you to everybody else. You know, it's between me and you. I forgive you. I cover over that sin, brother. Like, like here you can find safety. It's, it's okay. You know, we sin, we know it, we have a Savior. Come on in, brother, it's okay. And, and here we open up our hearts and our homes to, to one another. You know, like, hey, op- make yourself at home. Is there anything else left in the fridge? <laughs> I'll go out and buy that extra bottle of hot sauce. It doesn't mind. I don't mind. <laughs> hey, bro- brother, here, it's like every- everything is it's ours. Your family. You belong here. That's the kind of home that we should have. That's the kind of church that we should have where we're open to one another. We open our, our, our lives up to one another, especially if we know that the day is approaching, that we're even drawing nearer, closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the, the lessons that First Peter teaches us, Lord, important, practical lessons. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us uh, here at Baltimore Bible Church that we'd put these things into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.